Not that any of you remember, but we were working our way through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, verse by verse. And today's text, I will make some comments about the last time we were in Hebrews together to set up some context. But today's text is uh, Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. So we'll finish chapter 6. And the title is, A Sure and Steadfast Anchor for Your Soul. A Sure and Steadfast Anchor for Your Soul. Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, the writer of Hebrews knows he's said something confusing when he talks about God's swearing an oath. And I think he knows he has to explain that. Because you just don't hear that very often. 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... God wants to emphasize that. What what does he do? He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, that's the people to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing, these Jewish Christians under the persecution that they're facing, and we, we who have fled for refuge might have have strong encouragement to, to hold fast to the hope set before us. I was going to talk about that hope. 19. We have this, that hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where how does, how does my hope get, get there? I'm here. I have this hope. How does it up in glory, behind the curtain, presence of God? How does it get there? 20. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become... A high priest forever after the order of, and here it is again, Melchizedek. The whole seventh chapter, he's hinted at references to Melchizedek, and it's like he recognizes, I better tell these people about Melchizedek, and that's going to be chapter seven. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we get used to the glory of your word. 
The ways in which, like a person who moves to Switzerland and sees the Alps every day and marvels at them for the first month and then never looks at them again. We have Bibles, sermons, classes, studies. Prevent, prevent our eyes from becoming blind to the glory of the words of any biblical text. Open our eyes. The psalmist prayed that we might behold wondrous things from your law. And so do that work in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Is this going to work or not work? Okay, thank you. At the end of... Uh, the swearing-in of every president of the United States, you will hear the incoming president after repeating the duties of protecting, preserving, and defending the Constitution of the United States. You will hear him or her close the remarks with the all-important phrase, so help me God. Now, whether or not the incoming leader actually cares beans about the help of God is... I'm sure open to debate, and not my point. But, but that particularly famous phrase, it does open up an interesting question related to today's text, because this is a text all about oaths and swearing faithfulness to promises made. And immediately there's something weird about that when you talk about God. When God swears he's going to do something, it doesn't make sense for him to say, so help me God, because, because he's God. So there's no one else to offer him help in anything. There is no authority beyond himself. And yet, that seems to be the nature of taking any kind of oath. I mean, in court, many people swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And when they do that, they frequently place their hand on the Bible. I don't know that's mandatory anymore, but it used to be. Place your hand on the Bible, which is just another way, even if the person's an atheist. It's another way of saying, so help me God, because God, it is assumed, wrote the book. And so it's, it's a way of bringing God into the picture. I will tell the truth, so help me God. So the point here is oath-taking, swearing, truthfulness. They seem to require something or someone higher or more reverent than the person taking the oath. And God can't possibly do that, so... What's going on in this text? That's what we want to consider today. Point number one. How much does my walk with Jesus depend on my knowledge of the Old Testament? How would you answer that? How much does your walk with Jesus depend 
on your knowledge of the Old Testament. And one might hastily conclude the reading of the Old Testament has almost nothing to do with vital New Testament contemporary Christian experience. So, I mean, many portions of Chronicles and Leviticus, they feel void of spiritual life, any practical help. How is reading Leviticus going to help you live your Christian life in Newmarket in 2017? It's a fair question. Now, what I want to do real quick is to point out the link between today's text. We started at verse 13 of chapter 6. The link between this reference to God's oath to Abraham and swearing and that anchor of the soul. I want to look at what does, what does today's text have to do with what we just finished studying in Hebrews 6, 11, and 12. In our last study together, we, we, we read these words. The writer of Hebrews, speaking to these Jewish Christians in their struggle, he says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. So here's the, here's the issue. We want earnestness in these people. And to have full assurance of hope to the end. So, so that you may not be... See that? That can happen, right? Anybody know what sluggishness is following Jesus? I know what it is. Not sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so the idea there, we studied those verses, 11 and 12. The idea there is, is sluggishness for all of us. Sluggishness has to be resisted. It will settle on your soul the way the rain comes down from heaven or fog rests on a given area. Sluggishness settles on your soul like extra weight gains around your tummy. Sluggishness. And the writer says, Christians between now and when Jesus comes back have to, have to fight sluggishness and replace it with that earnestness. And the way sluggishness is to be resisted is through being this, imitators. Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, so those two concepts are linked together in the very same verse. They're intended to show the problem, sluggishness, and the remedy, imitators of those who through faith inherit the promises. Do you see that in that verse? The problem is sluggishness, but there's a solution. And the solution is we're to be imitators of those who through faith inherit the promises. So we're going to imitate. It's a big problem. One of the big problems in the Christian church today is we tend to imitate the wrong people. Can we just pick our role models at random? Rappers, pop stars, Academy Award winners? Will that, will that do the trick? No. Not if you want to fight spiritual sluggishness. You can know all about the Kardashians and you can, you can, but that's not going to help you overcome spiritual sluggishness. Not a bit. 
No, our text points our attention in a very specific direction, surprisingly. And the direction is the Old Testament. If New Testament Christians want to avoid spiritual sluggishness, they need to go back and look at examples of faith in the Old Testament. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Our writer assumes that a working knowledge of the major players, in this case, Abraham, imitate Abraham, and that will help Don Horbin and everyone in this room, that will help us fight spiritual sluggishness. This is incredibly striking, I think. Because it's not our natural inclination. There's something we're being called to consider in these words. Think about this. The New Testament completes, fulfills the Old, to be sure. But it still needs to be remembered that a full appreciation of the New Covenant requires an understanding of the lessons God was revealing in the Old. So... God gave us centuries of revelation preparing us for for a a full uh, grasping and embracing of the new covenant in Jesus Christ and the life of the Spirit. So, So what this writer, this New Testament writer, writing to New Testament Jewish believers who who are facing sluggishness and fatigue and persecution, what he says to them is... They need a working knowledge of their Old Testament. How's your Bible study coming? When someone preaches and they say, we're going to look at Micah, do you need to go to the table of contents or can you find that in your Old Testament? Examples. Warnings. Personalities are mentioned constantly, over and over again, frequently on the lips of Jesus. He talks about Abraham, and he talks about Noah, and he talks about Adam and Eve. These two testaments are designed to be read together. There's a plot line being formed. The ending is seen in its deepest meaning when we understand how Revelation gets there. So I wanted that as the first kind of backup point. How much does my walk with Jesus depend on my knowledge of the Old Testament? A whole bunch. Now point number two. God's oath to Abraham. And what does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with you? It's in verses 13 through 15. For when God made a promise to Abe, so here's the promise that's made. Since he had no other, no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now this is beyond the promise. Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now if you know your Old Testament at all, you'll know there are several times when God made the promise of an heir to Abraham. But there's a particular reference point for this text. And 
the clue is that phrase, he swore by himself, 613. There, there is one particular time those words were spoken to Abraham and the, and the context, we need to read it because it's packed with meaning. So if you've got a Bible, look at Genesis 22, 12 to 18. You know the story. Abraham going up the mountain with Isaac. Confused Abraham because God has told him to take his son Isaac up on the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. And that's what the pagan nations all around Israel did. But, it, but God had always forbidden it. And so up he goes with Isaac. Picture it. Ties him up. It's your offspring. He's going to obey the Lord. And that's right where you have to jump in and pick up the story. Genesis 22, 12. He, God, said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram. You know, those long, long horns, caught in a thicket by its horns, and, and he's wrestling, and he, he, can't, he can't get out. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Fifteen. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. So there's this voice. And said, by myself I have sworn. That's what the writer of Hebrews is grabbing right there. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, 17, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offering shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring all of the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So that oath, let me just show you quickly. That oath is... is, uh, a repetition of promises made earlier to Abraham. Where Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So just how all the nations of the earth should be blessed through Abraham is is expanded a little bit in Genesis 15. I'm just going fast over these. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this to Abraham. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son. Not Ishmael, it's going to be Isaac. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. 
Number the stars. There's an assignment. God says, count them. If you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, the important words are that, that fourth verse. Your very own son. Remember. Remember. Every hope for the fulfillment of God's promise for Abraham hung on Isaac. Right? Your only son. That's all he's got. One. And yet, Isaac is the one Abraham was called upon to offer in sacrifice. So, so God's plan, God's promise was it wasn't just love for Isaac. Of course that's there. But God's, God's whole promise, his oath to Abraham is unraveling right in front of his eyes. All he had looked forward to in anticipation, whatever faith he was able to muster was going to be impossible. Impossible. Without Isaac, this won't work. Now, don't forget, with all of that story, the writer of Hebrews writes to these persecuted Jewish Christians, and Christians like us, and we're told to consider. That's what we did just now, right? We're told to consider Abraham. So don't even just read about it. The commandment to you this morning is think about Abraham. Paint that story. Make it vivid. Our writer of Hebrews holds him up as an example as someone these Christians are to imitate, 612. You fight sluggishness by imitating those who through faith inherit the promises and then we're told about Abraham right away. So, Your spiritual sluggishness, fatigue, boredom, is to be resisted by thinking about what happened to Abraham. Abraham had a promise of God. And then there was real life. And the two weren't lining up. Is that sounding familiar to anybody? A promise from God and real life and the two aren't lining up. I could pronounce the benediction. We'd all just say, amen, been there. Only only that's not the point of the text. Please think this issue all the way through. We all have problems... For sure. That's not why we're told to consider Abraham. We're told to consider and imitate both those verbs. We're told to consider and imitate Abraham for another reason than simply the fact that, well, life, you don't always get what you want in life. Rolling stones, that's pretty profound stuff. You don't always get what you want. 
For Abraham, the issue isn't just coping with problems. For Abraham, the issue is the cutting off of all hope. Right? That's what Isaac represents. It's not just a backache. It's not just, well, you lose your job. It's not just, well, you know, I prayed for healing and it didn't come. You know, I... This is everything that God had promised, everything that was in Abraham as an object of hope was tied into Isaac. That's the issue. The cutting off of all future hope. Everything hinged on the promised seed. This promise was supposed to happen. And here we're told by the writer of Hebrews, Cedarview, you, you need, you need, if you're going to fight spiritual sluggishness, you need to drill down into your cranium and think about what's happening here. We have promises from God. We have expectations. Got some? Hopes. And we're told to consider and we're told to imitate... Abraham, because sooner or later, his experience is going to be yours. Not just a problem. But, Pastor Don, this is what I was banking on. This was supposed to work. Everything depended on this. You fill in the blanks. No matter what it was supposed to be, you know, you know when the bottom feels like it's falling out. It's not just some problem like we all face in life. It's, it's how you see your future being one of joy anymore. And right now you can't see your way out. Right now you're sitting here and things in terms of your relationship with the Lord, things have stopped making sense to you. This is where this text comes in. Imitate Abraham when what you consider for your future hope and joy doesn't appear secure or even possible. Imitate Abraham when, unlike the other difficulties that come along in your life, you have gradually come to the place where you, you can't summon hope to go on. You can't see any joy down the road. That's the issue of this text. God doesn't work anymore. This is where these Jewish Christians, those first readers of what we're reading this morning. Same, same letter. We get to read the same letter they read. It's amazing. This is where those Christians found themselves. Their, their Christian faith was as precious to them as yours is to you. Oh yeah. They, they felt the same joy of forgiveness... They felt the same hope of eternal life. They received the same release from religious dead works that could never change the heart. Suddenly they were, they were divinely rescued by the one they knew to be the Messiah. 
by a graciously redeeming, sinner-seeking, abundant, life-giving God. That's how they started their Christian life. And now suddenly, suddenly this faith was costing family. We know. Read the rest of the letter. Imprisonment. The loss of every dollar they had. The loss of their place to live. The text says that later on. Their home. Family members put in prison. It was the cause of all loss of income and earthly security. It brought instead persecution, imprisonment. And so, and so here's where they are. It, it looked like their hope was fading and failing. It, it looked like, you know what, maybe... Maybe we've been wrong all along. Okay, those are the people our writer addresses. It's a relevant issue. It's a lot easier, isn't it? It's a lot easier to sing those great phrases, I have decided to follow Jesus, the cross before me, the world behind me. It's a lot easier when everyone else in the room is singing the same song. But, but when the path you're on feels like it's going the wrong way, When the very things you held the most dear, the very things that seemed to offer the brightest future, like Abraham's son Isaac, when those things are cut off, when the lights start to go out, then, then it's easier to say, what's the use than I have decided to follow Jesus? Happens all the time. Make no mistake. Dullness of hearing, that's 5.11, we looked at that. Spiritual sluggishness, 6.12, we just read about that. Dullness of hearing and spiritual sluggishness, those things have roots. They don't come from nowhere. And, and our writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he connects two things brilliantly in this text. He ties together... The command to consider Abraham with the apparent loss of covenant hope through Isaac. He takes that and, and then he compares that with God's oath of commitment to secure our hope in the finished work of Christ. That's where we're going now. Point number three. We're almost done. I sat down and did this third point and rewrote it 20 times. To think of the clearest way to say it. This is the best I could do. I can't tell you how important this point is to me. If you set your hope on the wrong things, the promises of God will rarely seem to work. Read that with me. If you set your hope on the wrong things, the promises of God will rarely seem to work. Look at Hebrews 6. sixteen to twenty. Now he's talking about the oath. God taking the oath. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for consummation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's so much in these verses. And we should start by noting this is the only place in your Bible, whatever translation you have, this is the only place in the entire Bible where that verb guaranteed, verse 17, it is not used anywhere else in the scripture. Just here. And, and so we're immediately made aware there is something important being said. These verses enforce the idea of God's trustworthiness with 18, two unchangeable things. And those two things are God's promise and God's oath. We still sing, don't we? we? Well, we don't much anymore. We should. His oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood. His oath. And when I read that, I have a question. You probably have the same one. By two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath. And when I read that, I say to myself, why, why isn't God's promise enough. Shouldn't that be enough? I mean, does God lie? Some people don't even think it's right for Christians to take an oath. I'm not getting into that one right now. But what I can tell you is God does. Surely there's no need for an absolutely faithful, truthful God to back up a promise with an oath. God's very good at keeping promises. So why, why an oath? Well, certainly God doesn't need his oath. God's not insecure, hoping he can pull off what he says he's going to do. God's very good at doing exactly what he wants to do. He's actually better at that than anybody else. God's very sure of himself. We However, need all the assurance we can get. You'll notice why in that 18th verse, where we are all described, you, me, all of us, we're described as refugees. We hear a lot about that today, don't we? We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. That title shouldn't surprise us if we've been thinking through this whole letter carefully. The idea of being refugees. It brings us back into earlier passages that we've studied. Hebrews 3, the wilderness generation, wandering, no home, wandering in the wilderness. Their failure to enter the promised land, Hebrews 4. A whole generation wandering in the wilderness again. That, that's the picture we're given. 
And then their terrible mistake, their terrible mistake was the way they persistently sought their their security, their hope, the fulfillment of all their aspirations. They would fulfill those things outside of God's promised rest. Now, remember the third point that I had you read all together. That, That third point... If you set your hope on the wrong things, the promises of God will rarely seem to work. And you see how that principle takes effect in Hebrews 3, 14 to 17. Come on. There it is. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then he goes back and quotes this Old Testament. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So when they were told to go in, the spies went, checked out the land, but most of them said, we can't do it. This is what God brought us to. We, will, we cannot enter into what God has given us. We, we don't accept God's future for us. Okay? Over and over again. Let's go back to Egypt. Remember the story? And so, here's God's plan for them. And they are constantly trying to find contentment, security, fulfillment, a future, joy. They're trying to find that on their own terms rather than God's. And the result is, they die. They perish. Put your hope in the wrong things. The promises of God will rarely seem to work. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses... With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Here they are, these refugees. They leave Egypt. Moses leads them, but they forgot that they were en route to somewhere very specific. They were not to settle anywhere in the wilderness. They forgot they left Egypt with only one destination in mind, the promised land. And all of God's highest intention and fullest promises could never be realized anywhere else except there, the promised land. So our writer, who looks at these Jewish Christians and us, and he sees people growing sluggish, and he sees them getting tired And he sees people who don't seem to have any sense of hope or destiny driving them through life. And he says, you're refugees too. And if you try to settle your hope anywhere else other than the future you have in Christ. If you get bogged down with the hope of being the most successful business person in Newmarket, 
if you get bogged down with trying to uh, fulfill whatever aspirations you might have educationally, if you set your hope on, maybe you're a single person, maybe you're a single person and you are getting to the place where you, 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 you actually desire marriage more than you desire to follow Christ. Maybe you're a person who is in a, a relationship sexually that you know isn't right and isn't pleasing, but it makes you happier than anything else, and you're, you're, you set your joy there, okay? That's what I'm talking about. If, if, if those and a million other situations, if they describe you, the promises of God are never going to work for you because God's promises only work when you say, this is where he has been taking me since he saved me. My hope is in Christ. My hope is in pleasing Christ. My hope is in following Christ. My hope is in an eternity with Christ. And everything else, I have refugee status in this world. If that isn't you, God's promises don't work. If you try and make home, remember those people, our writer says, those wilderness people, if you try to make home what God never intended to be home, you will perish. This is where those deep words of promise come into play for all of us. I said I was almost done. Now I mean it. Last slide. This is where those words of promise come into play. We have this as a Sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that, now he describes, he describes how this anchor works. That enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. Okay, so, this, you know how an anchor works on a ship? It has to be, it doesn't work just sitting on the ship. Like, it has to be anchored to something. Am I being too technical for you? What, what is this anchor fastened to? Well, I'm constantly thinking of where Jesus has gone. But, but it's not just like a religious thing that I think about on Sunday. It's like an anchor. It's what, it's what secures my life in sports. It's what anchors my mind with all the different forms of entertainment. It's what anchors my life in terms of my education. It's what anchors my life in terms of my marriage or my singleness. I may not be able to change anything, but my anchor is there. My anchor is there. That, that, is, that, is, that is what my life draws on all the time. I, I don't have anything else that I'm attached to. Not like that. Don't, don't miss this central issue. In those two verses, God gives all of us a lot of good things. We should be thankful for all of them. My, we're blessed. We ask for daily bread, God is gracious. But the central issue of this text and the central issue in our lives 
is the placement of your ultimate hope, is the, the, the fixing of your deepest desires. Oh, oh, the fatigue of trying to squeeze eternal joy out of present blessings. It's, it's not in there. Your deepest disappointments will always reveal the root of your greatest joy. You want to see what's in a heart, break it. Every earthly security is as solid as a morning mist. And that's why this text says God actually took an oath all by himself. Just so someone like me, I need all the help I can get, would have double confidence. Don, you don't see the fulfillment of it all right now. Be like Abraham. He doesn't see how this is going to work out when he starts up the mountain with Isaac tied hand and foot. But anchor your life on Christ. And, and don't make that a slogan. Make it the way you live. And everyone said... Let's pray together.